the second part of what we started two weeks ago about the mountain of God. And the whole point is, um, as the Israelites are coming out of Egypt and they go through the Red Sea, they end up at a mountain. And we kind of just take it as, well, it's Mount Sinai. And then we ask questions. We tend to want to know, where is it geographically located? And that's, an, that's a very interesting study for what they've found. Um, at least what I think, many, I know many of you have seen those studies, that the, the mountain is possibly over in Saudi Arabia. Where the mountain of God is located, that's one thing. And then uh, what's happening on the mountain, that's another thing we could look at. But what I want to do is talk about, and I, it's a bit of an agenda, I do want to expose people to the idea of the mountain metaphor that when they show up to a mountain, they already have in the, a conception of the cosmos where the mountain makes sense. This is where God shows up, because that's where the, in the ancient world gods showed up. At the same time, you have a metaphor throughout the Bible of us on our journey ascending the mountain, because that's where the presence of God is located. So how do we ascend that? So that's really what I want to show is, when we get to the Mount Sinai piece, can we understand the metaphor of what mountain, mountain and spiritual journey is all about? So that's what we started with last time. Then today we're going to add in the whole concept of wisdom and why it's so important that we're, we're striving towards wisdom uh, in this lifetime. That's what we're going to add today. Okay, so this is the 19th, and that's why I said next week yeah, we'll finish. We'll do one more. That'll be the 20th. Just kind of ends a bit more evenly than 19. And uh, the picture, of course, in the background there, that's very northern tip of Israel, Mount Hermon. Uh, that was, in the ancient world, a cosmic mountain. It was the place where the heavens meet the earth. And to the ancient people who lived around there, that would have been a sacred place. In fact, Hermon comes from a word that means sacred. Peter says about Jesus, oh, by the way, this is the most likely candidate for the mountain that Jesus was transfigured on. It's right next to Caesarea Philippi. It's the highest mountain. And Peter says, we went up on a sacred mountain and heard the voice of, the voice of God. So Hermon means sacred. So that's why it's likely the place of the transfiguration, which makes sense as a cosmic mountain as well. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to do a quick review of last week, or sorry, last week, two weeks ago. And so number one on your sheet is we're going to start out with the review. And again, we're working uh, through a metaphor. And one of the places that we see the metaphor uh, is in Psalm 24.3. And I'm not going to have you turn there. Very quick sentence. Um, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? So we're inside of a metaphor. This goes throughout the Bible. Who may stand in his holy place? Who may stand in his presence? So where is, where is God? At the top of that mountain. Who may ascend? Right? We're on an upward journey. God points us up. We move up the mountain of the Lord. And that to the ancient world makes sense. We have to turn around and kind of study it backwards because we don't think about mountains in this way, although people love to climb mountains and 
mountain is a great metaphor for a spiritual journey because as you climb a mountain, even if you went to, say, Mount Cowles there in San Diego, every time you ascend a little bit higher, your perspective changes. And that's what happens on a spiritual journey. You get a different view of the world as you ascend. And that's what happens when we grow spiritually. It's like, oh, I have a different view of God's cosmos as I ascend spiritually. So this is where one of, or one of the places that you find asking that question along with Psalm 15. Okay, uh, so one of the things we did in our last session was we talked about the idea of the cosmic mountain, and that is an ancient idea. So uh, it comes out of the ancient Near East. A-N-E there on the screen is ancient Near East. And throughout the study of all of the religions and cultures around Israel, you find the cosmic mountain. And of course, God uses that to communicate to Israel. In the Bible, the mountain of the Lord or the mountain of God. And of course, the cosmic mountain just like we would envision a mountain, is the place where heaven and earth meet. So we depict it something like this, as the mountain ascends upward into the sky, and then the heavens, or gods, or whomever it is, descends down, and there they can meet with humanity. This is the Tower of Babel. The, The area around Babylon is flat as a pancake, so you build your own mountain. And the high priest ascends to mountain t- or ascends to the top of that tower to commune with the gods who are coming down. In fact, when you read the Tower of, the ba- of Babel, God says, I'm going to come down and take a look. He's using the same cosmic metaphor. Okay, so that's the cosmic mountain. And the weird thing is, is they're kind of everywhere. Jerusalem is a cosmic mountain. Uh, it becomes the central mountain for, within Judaism and in Jesus' day. But Throughout the Old Testament, there are, as they're worshiping on the high places, all those high places are also considered cosmic mountains. So they ascend, they build the altar. Okay. One of the references, and I have this um, footnoted that I mentioned last time, is called, well, let me back up real quick. Just so you know, that place where heaven and earth meet, that's the presence of God. That's what it's metaphorically showing. And the entire Bible is about the presence of God, right? The, the Bible is bracketed by the presence of God. It begins with the presence of God, with the people of God, Adam and Eve, in the place of God, a garden. And they're dwelling, and they're dwelling in harmony. The Bible ends, Revelation, same thing. The presence of God, the people of God, and there's a garden, there's a river. In fact, in Revelation, it says, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will be their God and will dwell with them. It's a, you could almost say the entire Bible is about the presence of God dwelling with his people. The earth fell because of sin. Now we're going to redeem it so that God and man can live as one together again. It's like that's the message of the Bible. We're part of the process of restoring that, bringing the kingdom of God here on earth. So, this book, called The Tabernacle Prefigured, Cosmic Mountain Ideology in Genesis and Exodus, and 
Notice the tabernacle is the place where the presence of God lives, and that's prefigured by the cosmic mountain. So uh, Michael Morales, a professor of biblical studies at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, that's in Greenville, South Carolina, and he's him and others have done tremendous work on the idea of the cosmic mountain. All right, so that was one, one thing we did. Then we said, well, wait a minute, there's a whole other side to this. And we talked about the cultivation of Christian character. Because you can, you can try to ascend the mountain, but if your character traits are not strong enough, you haven't cultivated character, you'll slip right back down the mountain. Um, so, for instance, you know, it's like Paul says, hey, I know what I should do, but I can't get myself to do it. So as we are on our spiritual growth journey and we grow towards wisdom and insights from God, then we have to have the, the strength of character to see it through. Because what good is it if we go right back along with what everybody else is doing? For that, our reference uh, is a book by N.T. Wright, and this book is called After You Believe. Uh, again, I have that one highlighted, or I'm sorry, I have that footnoted. After You Believe, what do you do after you become a Christian, right? What do we spend all of our time as Christians doing? Well, we worship, but we're supposed to be growing, right? It's after you believe why Christian character matters, and sometimes we get lost that the spiritual growth is now that you're saved, it's not a salvation issue, but now that you're saved, now we've got to grow your character and strengthen it so that we can have the appropriate uh, impact on the world. Another one would be Dallas Willard. That was one of his, um, one of his missions was to try to get people to think more about discipleship because as a Christian nation, we were sliding downhill pretty quickly. Okay, so here's what I did last time. I said, look, we can marry these. We can put these two books together because the cosmic mountain is when you show up to Mount Sinai and we're getting the Torah, the instruction manual for living delivered to the, to the Israelites. That happens on the mountain because that's where you meet God, but it requires that, that journey, uh, development of character. So we have to cultivate our character, and we can marry these then to think about the, our own metaphor as we ascend in life and why it's so important, why God wants us um, to be on the move rather than become a Christian, just lay on the couch eating nachos until, you know, Jesus returns, right? He doesn't want you to do that. You go out and you start fixing the things that are, that are wrong and start ministering to the world. So we talked, again, this is all review from two weeks ago. The goal of humanity is to ascend to be in the presence of God. So this would be uh, another thing we could think about in our Christian context is the difference between a brand new baby Christian and a mature Christian. There surely ought to be some differences. One person has matured in their faith. They don't stumble as much. The baby Christian. They're stumbling all over the place as they're trying to figure things out. So we said this, um, in the Bible, the Bible uses the terms for 
if you're not climbing the mountain, foolishness. And at the top of the mountain, what you're striving for is wisdom. And that's what the Bible sets those two always um, across from each other. So it's, for instance, we'll talk in a minute, humanity uh, has a propensity to be in a delusion at the base of the mountain. We don't see God. We, We don't understand our actions in the world. So, for instance, the Bible says here, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's the biggest delusion that you can have, that, that God doesn't exist. And if God doesn't exist, then I can do whatever I want. There's, there's your delusion. It's called foolishness in the Bible. We noted also, what's the beginning of wisdom, right? The fear of the Lord. It's the not fear like I'm trembling afraid. The acknowledgement of the reality of God and the structure of the cosmos that he's built, once I'm aware of that, now wisdom begins. And it's the beginning of wisdom, not the end. We're, we're just kicking off our journey. So you have an awareness of God and you begin to rise up that, uh, up that cosmic mountain and the, to attain wisdom, at least in this lifetime. Okay, so... Um, some of the things that I put on your sheet about foolishness. So you're at the bottom of the, that uh, mountain. This is where humanity resides when they're not in touch with God, is we are so prone to delusion. And it's, it shouldn't be a surprise. <laughs> Go on any social media, you know, Twitter, for any amount of time, and you'll realize there's delusion going on. Um, there is no God. That's a delusion. There is no afterlife, right? So if, if there's no afterlife or resurrection, then my, as long as I don't get caught in this lifetime, I'm good, right? And we would say, no, you're not, because this life, our life is just a passage through. And your, your actions in this life are going to have ramifications for how you spend it uh, in eternity. So uh, delusions, we have delusions in political ideologies. Uh, terrible, terrible delusions about the way people see politics, and it can have terrible destructive consequences because of it. Uh, we're very good at deceiving ourselves, right? Um, there's a phrase, I think it's from, I think it's from Carl Jung, the psychologist. He says, people can be possessed by an ideology. They're so possessed by the ideology, they can't see straight, right? Any any evidence contrary to what they believe, they reject because it creates too much dissonance to be able to think, to see something that doesn't fit your ideology. So everybody can be prone to that ideology. Um, I also put on here, out of touch with reality. And we'll talk more about that, what, what that means. Things become more real as you grow closer to God. The reality of the way you see the world changes as you grow closer to God. Uh, it changes when you become a Christian. So what, the way we would describe those people at the bottom is they're out of touch with reality. And when you get in touch with God as the ultimate in reality, your life changes. It can't help it but change. Um, okay, there's tremendous suffering in the world 
both external and internal, right? If your internal map, your world of view doesn't, rely, doesn't align with God's, uh, the way that God structured the cosmos, you're going to be frustrated all the time. You'll end up angry and you suffer because of it. Once we can see the world through God's eyes, we begin to feel a cohesiveness and we feel like there's meaning in the world because we understand God's perspective and see it actually working out in the world. So what happens? People, they turn to goals like power, uh, material wealth, because they're trying to alleviate their suffering on their own. And this is just the world we live in. This is where the majority of of people are. Um, And sometimes we can even fall prey to some of these delusions and deceptions and things like that. Because as Jeremiah says, the, the heart is deceitful above all things. Well, whose heart? That guy over there? Well, no, my heart too, right? All of us can be deceived. That's why, uh, you know, the number one character trait for Moses is humility. Because if we can't be humble about our own condition, then there's very likely we're not going to be able to change or see the world differently. So, okay, that's at the bottom. That's the foolishness. But we want to grow towards wisdom. We want to grow to the top of it. Well, what happens up there? Well, you're in touch with reality. The ultimate reality is God. We see, begin to see the world and ourselves through his eyes. And now everything takes on new meaning, right? We break free of the delusion and the self-deception. We transcend suffering. That's the Christian. Instead of complaining about suffering and trying to get power to alleviate it, bear your cross. And we pick up our cross and we transcend the suffering because we see that there's something greater beyond this lifetime. And then instead of a goal of power or material wealth, we try to fix the world, restore order, alleviate the suffering of others. And this has been the mission of Christians for 2,000 years, to go out and minister to the world. So this is what the Bible so much of what the Bible talks about are, are bouncing these two things off of each other. And, and part of the, even the Exodus story is escaping the delusion and self-deception of sin so that we can ascend to the mountain of God and that we can dwell in God's presence. And that's how Exodus ends, with God's presence amongst the people. So, okay, again, sorry, long review, but it's real important. Now, I don't think this is number seven. I, sorry, that number. Uh, see, I knew I was telling Walter before the thing. I'm like, I guarantee you there's a slide that I got wrong in here because I was. So what's the growth process? Well, what do we have to do? Well, again, you start at the bottom. Uh, you know, before I was saved, I was acting foolishly. Then you have a moment of ascension and you begin to realize that reality around you is not structured the way you think. So we kind of come out of the foolishness. We need a proper goal, and that's the nest. That's what the banner that God's going to raise up. Our goal becomes to be Christ-like in, in, a, in a very real sense. Jesus becomes the pinnacle of what we're intending. It's when God came into humanity, it's Jesus, right? And we are made in the image of God, so we have to conform to that. How do we do that? Well, we have to practice spiritual attunement. That is, we have to get in touch with God's Spirit. This is worship and prayer and fasting 
and all the things that help us get our heart to uh, be in touch with God so that we can hear God's voice, right? And I didn't mention this last week, but I put it on your sheet uh, under the growth process, is I realized, oh, the spiritual attunement, this is, Sol- this is the Solomon story. Because we, we tend, our Bible, I think most Bibles say, Solomon asked for wisdom. But that's not really true. It's not technically true, because he didn't use the word wisdom. The word that, that Solomon used is to listen or to hear. And so here's what Solomon says to God. He says, give your servant a, now this is the NIV, discerning heart. But that's not even, discerning is, you tend to think, I'm trying to figure out the distinguish between right and wrong, which is what's next. But actually it says, give me a listening heart. Give me a heart that hears. That's spiritual attunement. I want to, in fact, the word Shema, that's the great commandment, Shema Israel, hear, O Israel. And that means to hear or listen. So what Solomon asked for is a listening heart. He wants his spirit to be attuned to God. So we've got to hear God. And God then says, and I'll give you wisdom. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Wisdom is the is the gift from God that gives you the insight. Wisdom is more about insight, insight to God's will, insight to the reality, the nature of this world, insight to my own sin, whatever it is. So spiritual attunement, that's connecting with God. And then we add to this the cultivation of character, because once you rise up that mountain, if your character isn't strong enough, if you haven't cultivated actions of love, forgiveness, courage, you won't, be able to, you won't be able to hang on. That's not about salvation or losing your salvation. It's just the journey we're on. Now, how did Solomon do with character? What did he end up doing? Yeah, there were three rules in Deuteronomy. Kings shall not hoard gold, they shouldn't hoard horses, and they shouldn't hoard wives. And what does Solomon do? All three. So his character, and of course, by the time Solomon's done, his kids are a mess and the place falls apart. So that's what he was, he was missing, was the cultivation of character. So when we do that, we naturally rise up. Okay, that, that was all review. And there's a lot in there. And it's, it's mostly to this class to go over that, because when we add in the idea of we're, we're searching for wisdom, all of this is going to flow into what is wisdom? So tonight, that's what we're going to talk about now. This is number two. The preview is we're going to explore the idea of wisdom. Uh, what does that mean when we ask for wisdom or seek wisdom? Then we have to apply wisdom to our ascending journey. And then we have to make it practical, right? Because God gives us commandments. He took, us, he took Israel to the mountain in order to give them commandments. So what I want to be able to do is do a couple examples of how does wisdom apply with commandments? Because that's really where, if we want to manifest wisdom in the world, we've got to apply it somewhere. And so what I want you to do, just so that you can consider this as we talk about wisdom, is I want you to turn to Exodus 23. We're just going to look at 1 through 3. 
uh, I'm of the mindset that Christians need to do more study of their Old Testament commandments. We often uh, say things like, you know, we're under grace, not the law. It's not work salvation. I get that. It's, it's the whole point of the mountain. It's not about salvation. It's about obtaining wisdom, building the kingdom here and now. And so many of these commandments, we can dig for the wisdom in them. And maybe they don't apply in the cultic sense of, of Israel, but there's wisdom because it came from God. And we, we should start with the precondition that God's wise and wants the best for us. And so we need to look at these commandments from the standpoint of wisdom. And I will argue that these three verses, there's a number of commandments, absolutely apply to every single one of us. So I'm just going to read them without comment. But I, as we go through and talk about uh, wisdom, we're going to swing back around at the end and talk about these commandments. Okay, so starting in verse 1, do not spread false reports. I'm reading from the NIV. Uh, some Bibles, in fact, the, the Jewish Bible says, do not spread false rumors. But false reports, same thing. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious wish witness. Then it says, do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. Apparently, God is a little bit concerned about the crowd. And do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. Now, as Christians, these, well, these are simple commandments, yes? Are we still obligated? Yep, you bet, right? We have to bear, we have to bear true witness. We're, we're, we're supposed to be concerned about justice. This just gets into more details. So we still have to uh, figure out how we can implement these in the world. And our goal is as we look at wisdom, and the importance of wisdom is, instead of just reading these commandments, like, do I have to obey them or not, where's the wisdom? What can we understand about the nature of reality? And when God says these things, how if we don't do them, what happens? The implications. So, it's, we want to dig for the wisdom so that we can then bring goodness into the world and not inadvertently do wrong. Okay, those will be, we'll, we'll finish that up, we'll finish up at the end. All right, so, uh, number three. I think, well, part of the reason I wanted to do, talk about wisdom and do this video is that there's often a lot of confusion around wisdom. What does it mean, ask for wisdom, right? People tend to think, I got a problem, you know, I don't know if I should date this person, go to college, buy this house, whatever, God, give me wisdom. What they're asking for is the answer. And wisdom's a little bit different than that, but we'll, uh, it does apply. It applies to all aspects of our life, and it's really foundational to living a, a stable life across time. So what we have under wisdom is the Bible, we would consider it divine wisdom. And we'll talk about what the differences between these two are. Divine wisdom. Wisdom 
insight from God is what it is. The wisdom is really more insight. God's delivering it. In fact, the Bible talks about how it's a special gift from God that comes in, that you're given insight to the nature of God's will, the nature of reality. And then you just have practical wisdom. And so we kind of know that. That's things like, uh, I need to build a house. Well, what are, the, what, are the good, what are the things that when you build a house, the house will last for a long period of time? Right? I need to have a relationship. What are the things that need to go into a relationship that'll help that relationship over a long period of time? Anything that takes a skill that you can apply over a long period of time, it provides stability, the highest possible outcome. That's practical wisdom. In the ancient world, there's no difference. Everything comes from God. But to us, we have divine wisdom and practical wisdom. So, okay, divine wisdom. And I was saying earlier, I know where I want to get with this, but I wasn't exactly sure the order. So all of what I'm going to put on the screen is on your sheet, but it might not be in exactly the, right, the same order. I didn't give you a list like I'm going to put on the screen, and I usually try to do that so that it doesn't cause confusion. But they're all list, all of these attributes about wisdom are on your sheet. So divine wisdom is always a gift from God. So as a human being engages with God, it usually comes in the form of insight. Ah, I just realized something about God. Ah, I just realized something about love. Ah, I just realized it's an insight. It's something that helps you understand the nature of reality. Uh, so here's what I put down, number two, insight into the nature of reality. God created the world, and the world has a certain fabric to it, and wisdom helps us understand that. We get, we be able to, we're able to see the world as God would like us to see it. We also have insight to God's will. What does he want for us? How are we supposed to behave in particular situations that will produce the highest amount of good over time? We'll talk about this. The two components to wisdom are God wants you to produce goodness, and it's always over a long period of time. So insight into God's will. As we're ascending the mountain, that's why spiritual attunement, when we get these insights from God, and then God says, okay, don't bear false witness, and uh-oh, the pressure's turned up because all your friends want you to go along with them. And now you got to have that courage and sense of justice that's going to say, nope, I won't bear false witness, and I will stand in the fire of, you know, all my friends or whatever it is. Okay, so divine wisdom is always an attempt to manifest goodness through the actions of human beings feed the poor, help the, you know, or feed the hungry, help the poor, take care of the widow, the orphan. You're manifesting goodness in the world through your actions. So it's once we become a Christian, now go serve and create goodness in the world, restore order. It's through your actions. And then also, finally, divine wisdom is, say, insight to see our actions, my own behavior, from God's perspective. So it helps us see our own behavior. And I keep using this word reality. I'm going to show you in a minute a definition that's uh, it's on your handout. But it really is, um, the word, <laughs> even I use the word really, 
it really is important that we understand that reality changes as we move towards God. And we tend to think, well, we, sometimes we can reject that. But every time you learn something new or have an insight, it means you, you get a new perspective on reality that you didn't have before. So, okay, I put a little uh, definition. This is from a commentary on First and Second Kings, and he's talking about the wisdom of Solomon. Uh, Donald Weissman was a professor at the University of London in England, and he says, wisdom is the right understanding of reality. And that's why I started with, if you're not even ascending the mountain, the fool doesn't see God. He doesn't have a right understanding of reality. Foolishness is not understanding the full nature of God and then acting it out. So wisdom gives you insight to the right understanding of reality. And then, he says, it becomes the basis of a moral and ethical life. So, as we grow on our Christian journey, I know this happened to me because I wasn't a Christian and became a Christian, things became more real. And I know that sounds like, how is that possible, that things became more real? Well, I don't know. That's just the feeling I had. The world became more alive. Um... God became very real in a way that I'd never sensed before. Uh, the word real is used a lot in this. We realize our potential as we ascend the mountain. Um, as we grow closer to God, God's reality is more real. In fact, people who have near-death experiences, they, go ha they have a near-death experience, they come back into this world, and almost every single one of them says this. It was the most real thing I've ever experienced. Well, what does that mean? I don't know. I can't explain it. But it was real. It was like It was more real than this life. That's how they explain it. That's heaven, right? So, um, wisdom is the proper understanding of reality. When we can properly understand reality from God's perspective, we change. And that's very important. Practical wisdom. This now gets into wisdom in this world. And I put this definition, it's on the uh, second part of your sheet. Practical wisdom is knowledge, right? So we have knowledge about something and we add experience. If I want to build a house, well, since I don't know anything about it, I got to learn something. But I also ought to find somebody who's wise, a wise home builder. Someone who has experience in that. You know, people say all the time, does something work in theory, right? Something that works in theory doesn't always work in practice. And we get, uh, you know, intellectuals who only deal in theory when the people on the ground dealing in the reality of the world are saying, well, you're way off base because you're not actually putting that into practice. It's just theoretical. So practical, practical wisdom is how do we structure things in our lives that can produce good over a long period of time? So building a house, uh, you know, anything that's going to last over a long period of time, you can learn wisdom from people so that you can have success over that uh, long period of time. And that would be more, I just, I put that up there just to say, as human beings, we have practical wisdom 
and there's that would be a little bit different than divine wisdom. Okay, now uh, getting to the last thing about wisdom, and I actually labeled number four on the back of your sheet. Wisdom produces goodness over time. This is why God wants us to attain wisdom, so that our actions today. The ramifications of our actions today ripple out as goodness throughout the world and in our own lives. So, so much of what we attempt to do as Christians in Christian walk is to produce goodness over time. So, just to diagram this out, and this is on your sheet, all of us exist over time. In fact, this is one of, it's a, one of the coolest studies I've ever heard was at the Cook County Jail. Cook County is Chicago. The Cook County Jail, they started a program with the prisoners, uh, low-level offenders, but they started a program with the, with the prisoners, and they taught them chess. And you think, now what does chess have to do with anything? Well, chess helps you think multiple steps ahead in time. Because so many of these guys or girls grew up and they're, they're very limited on when they think about their behavior over time. So they're constantly getting in trouble. And when they taught them chess to learn five, six, seven steps ahead, guess what happened? They stopped getting in trouble because they began to see, I don't want to go back to that. And it was a remarkable thing. They, what they realized was they exist over time. And in the moments of what do I do now, they thought ahead that most of us just take we take for granted that we do that. So we exist across time, which means our behavior matters, right? What we do today will ultimately turn into our past. And it can turn into regret. And it can turn into, you know, all of our sins are in the past. And they become a weight on our life. So God wants us to act today. What are you going to do today? Live by wisdom. So that whatever I do today, the ramifications ripple out across time so that if it's goodness today, it'll be goodness tomorrow. It'll be goodness three weeks from now, months from now, years from now. And if we can read the commandments and how we go through life, thinking about how do we produce goodness, even in the smallest of things, this can have a huge impact on us. So. This is what living wisely does, so that we don't create a mess and then end up regretting it. Now, the other thing to, to figure out, well, is, this, is what I am doing good? It's not just you. It's not just me, right? Because we live, and it's a complex world. So there's me that lives in the world, and it's my actions. But me and my actions not only affect me, they affect my family. They affect the community around me. They affect the fabric of society as a whole. And so, as we think about why do we seek wisdom? Well, it's because I, I want to go buy a car that's going to last me the longest period of time. And if I'm not, if I don't know what I'm talking about on cars, I better find somebody who does, who can help me with all the nuances. And then I make a wise decision and the car lasts me for a long period of time. And that's good. It's good for everybody. So this is one way you can think about how's my behavior impact me across time, but not only me, my family, my community, my society. So 
when God gives us wisdom to understand his commands from his perspective, from his reality, ah, now we can see why some things, you know, where people say, we don't need to do that anymore. Uh, maybe you should, because you exist across time. You don't, want to, you don't want your behavior today to turn into a regret tomorrow. Okay, so this is kind of what wisdom looks like in our test for putting it together. I mean, if you just think about a simple commandment, do not lie. What does a lie produce over time? Well, for you, it's anxiety. What if I get caught in a lie? It's a disorder. There's distrust. It's a disturbance to the fabric of... Is your lie good for you? No. Is it good for your family? No. Is it good for the community? No. So across all areas, that lie is not a good idea. And so when you are tempted to lie, now comes your character. Do I have the strength to tell the truth? Okay, so this is just a diagram of what goodness, uh, or I'm sorry, wisdom that produces goodness over time and why it's so important. So let's go back now, if you have your uh, Exodus opened, and I'm just going to read through again very uh, simply these commands again, because all of us would agree the fabric of justice in society, if it goes bad, society goes bad. Everybody should be concerned about justice. And justice is not only an individual issue, but that individual issue makes up society. So often justice at a societal level will reflect the human beings that make up society. If we think about these matters of justice right here, and you could go Exodus uh, 23, 1 through 9, and you're all about justice. So just think about this one. Don't spread false reports. Probably a good idea, right? Could you regret one day making a fault, spreading a false rumor? Now, is it always in the in the in the context of a court, a ruling in a in a court, or is it just repeating something that's not true about another human being? Is it spreading a rumor? And there's a number of times in the Old Testament where they're going to talk about don't spread rumors. You can never go, you can never take back what you said about somebody. So don't spread false reports. That's a good idea. Hard to do sometimes. Takes strength of character. Now, the sentence relates somehow to the next part. Don't help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. And we notice in this case, we already know they're guilty. So how do you help a guilty person? Well, you lie about their guilt and you say they're innocent, right? That's being a malicious witness to the truth. So do not carry a false report or do not spread a false report. It distorts reality. And so what we need in order to, once we have uh, wisdom, the insight that says that is distorting the fabric of reality, now we need the strength of character to not do it. Okay, next sentence. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. Now, how many people in our world follow the crowd? Like, a lot. And God clearly sees that there's a problem. The crowd could be wrong. 
Now, maybe they're right, but it, look at the sentence. Don't follow the crowd in doing wrong. So clearly, God sees that the crowd is often wrong. Mob mentality. Crowd mentality can almost possess people. You get picked up. People act differently in crowds than they would ever act alone. God knows this, so don't follow the crowd. The next one, when you give testimony in a lawsuit, so now it's more you're giving testimony about something that happened, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. <laughs> now, so clearly God understands the nature of crowd and our ability to be influenced. And you think about what's the character trait that you need to have cultivated to stand apart from that crowd. And I would argue courage, and we don't cultivate courage in our society. It's going to take courage for you to stand up and say no. Or even if you just said, I don't know yet, I'm not convinced that you are correct, and the crowd can very easily turn on you. And they do all the time. That happens all the time in our world. But you can see what's happening is from God's perspective, every single time there's a false report, every time you're engaging in a lie, every time you're just following along and not standing up for truth, goodness or the, the, the fabric of reality is being perverted. You're perverting justice in a way. Now, the other part, and I forgot to read this, do not show favoritism to a poor person. Now, that's, we tend to think God protects the poor. He does. But in matters of justice, he wants, just, he wants justice. Right? If you look down at verse, uh, I think it's verse 23, verse 5 or 6, it does say, make sure that you provide justice for the poor. So he's not against uh, the poor in court. He's just saying, if you're perverting justice, it's not correct. So don't pervert justice by siding with the crowd, and don't show favoritism to the poor. You have social problems, and you have problems in justice. Don't confuse the two. So there's a couple reasons I wanted to bring this up, the, these commands. First of all, we deal with them today. We're all dealing with them, especially with social media. I mean, people are, it's, the, the pressure's always there to follow the crowd, to possibly be a malicious witness. It's so easy to spread false reports. We don't even, we barely think about it. I mean, we have, we have a full part of entertainment that's nothing but rumors. I mean, the, the, the tabloids and the, you know, rumors have become just a, a, a pastime in our society. We don't take it serious, the, the distortions in reality that are, that are happening. We don't see things, through what, how they actually ripple out into society. We're not seeing things from God's perspective. So I want to bring them up because they're, they're terribly relevant, but two, because they're commandments that even as Christians, we're supposed to be paying attention to. And if we don't read them, if we don't consider the wisdom that God's giving us, we'll let them go. So hopefully you go back, reflect on those commandments, see how they show up in your life, ask God for wisdom, the insight to give you his perspective on that, and see if that doesn't help maybe change a little bit and give you a little bit more intestinal fortitude should the time of testing come. So, all right, let's finish this up. Just a quick review. So the mountain of God looks something like this. The world is stuck in foolishness, delusion, deception, 
not in touch with the reality of God and his creation. And our job as we rise above that, that would be you come out of that foolishness to start seeing the world as it is. We set Jesus as our lodestar that we're going to point at because we need something to, to follow in this world. And then we begin a process of spiritual attunement, getting in touch with God so that we can hear from God the wisdom, and at the same time we cultivate character so that we don't slip back down the mountain as we're going up. And then if we, once we grab wisdom and we act wisely in the world, we know we're acting wisely because it produces goodness over a long period of time. And the world will tell you that many things that, you, that God tells us to do is not wise, but if you follow the wisdom of the world, it'll often lead to catastrophe. So we have to be very careful, where's the, where's the wisdom I'm hearing coming from? Is it, is it the wisdom of the world, or is it God's wisdom? Because God's wisdom is going to be significantly better in the long run than the world. Okay, so hopefully that helps try to flesh out a little bit but what do we mean by wisdom, and what are we aiming for as we ascend the mountain of God? And so next week, again, I'm not really sure what I'm what to do. I know there's a couple different ways of looking at the Ten Commandments that are that bring up wisdom. They're wise. If you can understand the Ten Commandments in this particular context, it helps us see something greater going on rather than just a list of of uh, statements by God. So. That's what I think I'd probably go in that direction next week, but that'll be our final one before we take a break for the summer. So anyways, hopefully that helps with, uh, helps flesh out some ideas about wisdom and why it's important to ascend that mountain. That's how we manifest the kingdom here on earth. And it, I truly believe, I mean, one of the insights that God has given me is it ripples out whether you like it or not. And when you do good, it ripples out across the world. You can't see it, but that's not our job to see it. Our job is to build the kingdom. Let God be the architect that finishes it. We hope you enjoyed today's lesson, and that it helps you gain a deeper understanding of the biblical text. Fig Tree Ministries is an educational nonprofit, and we're 100% listener-supported. If our lessons have been valuable to you in your study of the Bible, we ask that you support our work with a financial donation. Whether it's a one-time donation or you become a monthly supporter, we appreciate your generous gift. Donations are easy through our website, figtreeteaching.com, and you can become a regular supporter for as little as $5 per month. We've included a link to our donation page in the description section below. Online giving through our donation partner, DonorBox, is easy and secure. By setting up your DonorBox account, you'll be able to easily track your donations when it comes time to doing your taxes. We thank all of our donors for their generous gifts, and as you go into the world, may the words of number six be with you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you shalom. Shalom.